Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, after day two of the impeachment trial, which was uh, really quite extraordinary. Hey, before we get into all of this with our special guest, Kim Whaley, uh, we are going to be having a Bulwark Plus exclusive live stream tonight with special guest Ben Wittes from Lawfare. And uh, the crew is going to be talking about uh, today's a trial and uh, these are always interesting conversations so if you join if you join bulwark plus you will have access to that live stream and uh, in case you haven't taken advantage of the offer that we're making to the hundreds of thousands of people who listen to this podcast uh, you can get uh, a free 30-day trial membership to bulwark plus just by going to thebulwark.com slash charlie thebulwark.com slash charlie and you can sign up and You'd be eligible to watch the, the the live stream tonight, as well as you know, continue to get our newsletters, the uh, the morning shots triad, as well as the other podcasts that we have. And this is not the only Bulwark podcast. There is the Secret Podcast, which is not that secret, the Next Level Podcast, and of course, Beg to Differ by Mona Charon, which if you have not tried, it is just absolutely outstanding. So, good morning, Kim Whaley. The morning after day two. How good are morning. you? Good morning. I'm I'm well, Charlie. Happy I have to, to be here. I have to say that I was uh, I was I was surprised by how riveting it was yesterday, and I, I don't want to be a stand here, but I thought the House managers did an extraordinarily good job of laying out the case, connecting the dots, uh, and 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 really, um, you know, linking Donald Trump to what happened, not just through the words from January sixth, but through his entire pattern of practice and conduct. Yeah, as you know, I did a piece for the Bulwark mm-hmm. encouraging the calling of witnesses. I still think that would be a helpful step for them to take for a number of reasons, but but I too didn't expect it to be so compelling and it was for a number of reasons. One is as you indicate, they sort of did this split screen um kind of showing what happened on the Capitol at the same time we're seeing what Donald Trump is saying, tweeting or not doing. Um and I think putting it in real time sort of kind of leaves you with little question that he was fully aware of everything that was going on and deliberately allowing it and encouraging it to happen. It, we also saw new um, video footage of web, uh, webcams that were uh, body cams that were on some of these officers. That was super compelling, just how heroic and and in the line of danger these people were and how left to twist in the wind they were by the commander in chief um and i think the last piece was the the mike pence scenario the Amazing. you know him you know running down the back stairs with his family at, with shouts to to assassinate mike pence and the where are you nancy as well just that there was this feeling of them actually hunting hunting these members mm-hmm. of Congress, and that it was just moments. And by virtue in part of the bravery of the Capitol Police and the Metropolitan Police, that there weren't murders of our elected representatives with Donald Trump seemingly jeering in the background. That was exactly my take. As you watch this, you, you get a sense of just the the, the sheer violence, uh, the fact that they were hunting them. And if they would have encountered any of these officials, that they would have encountered Schumer, uh, Romney, Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi or Mike Pence, they they might have 
they would have assaulted them and they and they might have murdered them i mean that, that it is that serious you know i, I it was interesting afterwards because i was watching some of the commentary and the networks were saying you know we we you know thought we knew everything about what happened um you know we thought we had seen all of the all of the angles there's been tremendous journalism and yet the house managers managed to keep some of the stuff in their pocket and so it was fresh it was new it was surprising and there and there were there were some videos that i thought um were as you point out, just absolutely chilling, but also, again, connecting Donald Trump to what happened. And I really thought, and I'm going to start here. I really thought that one of them um, that I, I thought was you know, particularly powerful was during Joaquin Castro's presentation where they played the video of a, pro a, a rioter with a bullhorn reading one of Donald Trump's real-time tweets about Mike Pence as they were invading the Capitol, in case you were wondering whether there was any connection between Donald Trump's words and the hang Mike Pence chants. Let's just play this. It's about uh, two minutes long. Joaquin Castro, uh, again, uh, one of the congressmen who made a very compelling case, I thought, yesterday. At 2.24 p.m., he tweeted, quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution. USA demands the truth. Over an hour and a half into the attack, and this is what he tweeted. And he still, even at this point, did not acknowledge the attack on the Capitol, let alone condemn it. Instead, he further incites the mob against his own vice president, whose life was being threatened. Well, some of you may say, well, who was paying attention anyway? Well, that mob was paying attention. The insurgents amplified President Trump's tweet attacking the vice president with a bullhorn. They were paying attention. And they also followed instructions. In fact, the insurgents were at one point, as you saw, 60 feet away from the vice president and the vice president's family. Okay, so Kim Whaley. Uh, was, yeah, I mean, just so to be to clarify compelling. for those who weren't able yeah. to watch it, um, th those words from the protester or the rioter through the bullhorn during the trial, we saw the tweet. 
sort of side by side and split screen while that was mm-hmm. happening. And I had to take do a double take, Charlie, because at first I said, that doesn't sound like Donald Trump. And then even for someone who follows this carefully, it, it I, I remember my mind making that connection. Listen, they, they took the tweet and they used the tweet specifically in the moment to get people riled up and ready for extraordinary violence. And so, you know, if you read the the pretrial brief by the defense lawyers, their argument on the facts is, you know, this crowd was completely acting on its own, that, that you know, right. we are going to disavow Donald Trump from any of it. They, they, they were criminals. They committed crimes. Has absolutely nothing to do with Donald Trump. That's going to be a really, really hard thing, even for Trump's defense ter- attorneys to articulate with a straight, fa- straight face after yesterday. No, and I, as I was watching that, I thought, did I know this? Did I know that this had taken place? Had I really put together that uh, timeline? Uh, no, and I thought I'd known this pretty well. So this is a slight digression here. But, you know, as I was watching this performance, do you remember the, the, the first impeachment trial? Do you remember how oh, the, yeah. the Democrats were kind of boring and they were kind of, you know, you know stepping on one another? You know, when you think about the problems of having congressmen being the prosecutors. You have all of these egos and you know, a little bit of jostling and everything. And and, and I think that one of the things we've, we've learned is that, you know, they're not necessarily the best interrogators. They're not necessarily the best prosecutors. And yet yesterday they were coordinated. I mean, this was, it was I mean, what, somebody helped them with this. I mean, seriously, it, it feels like they brought in some significant, you know, executive producer who said, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do this tightly. We are not going to be re- redundant. Um, this is what you do. Uh, these are the sound bites you use. This is the video you use. This is how we present this in the most compelling manner possible. Because the last thing I really expected was that this trial was going to be good television and it's good television. And right. I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I don't mean to insult them, but I don't think the congressmen themselves were able to, you know, produce that particular, uh, narrative as well as what we saw yesterday. Yeah, I mean, in in some of us have been scratching our heads for years as to why the Democrats can't couldn't um, across the board sort of swiftly pull together a coherent message, and we've seen the Lincoln Project, frankly, um, do it in the last campaign, and and they on behalf of the rule of law, on behalf of the Constitution, against Donald Trump, etc. And maybe they took a page from sort of that book. But I should just say, I mean, Jamie Raskin, the House impeachment manager is really extraordinary. Um, he, you know, he, uh, I've interviewed him also. He is, and as from law professor to law professor, he has a, a stunning mind when it comes to c- complex constitutional law, but also, he, you know, he has a really, really personal stake in this. Um, you know, having lost his son tragically, and then days later, he, his daughter and son-in-law come to the Capitol to support him, given the family trauma during this, this event that was not anticipated to be this violent. I mean, I think his, he, he told, uh, he said that he, his daughter said, listen, I'm not sure I want to go. I don't want it to be dangerous. And, and he, he, he assured her it would be okay and then tells, you know, in his opening statement uh, the first day, choking back tears, how, you know, he, 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 his daughter and son-in-law were behind a door with battering ram, you know, sounds trying to get through thinking they were going to die. I mean, so this is a man who not only cares deeply about the Constitution and understands the stakes well beyond Donald Trump, but has a, has a personal stake in seeing justice done. And, and I think it's it's unfolding 
in part because his deep, deep conviction and skill, frankly, um, I, I was just really, really impressed with him in particular on how coherent he is and clear he has been. Uh, it, it's really a moment where Americans should feel good about some of their elected members of Congress are doing the right thing for the American people. Uh, so uh, I, I, I was going to hold the Jimmy Raskin. I have a little soundbite from Jimmy Raskin. I was going to hold it for a little bit later, but uh, if I could ask our producer, um, uh, Jim Swift, let's call an audible and, and put this up. Uh, I, I, Jimmy Raskin made an interesting point about the about the free speech defense. The you know the um, you know uh, that there are limits to it, including you know shouting fire in a crowded theater. But he extended the metaphor um, in a rather interesting way. Let's play. Let's play the Raskin cut. First than someone who falsely shouts fire in a crowded theater. It's more like a case where the town fire chief, who's paid to put out fires, sends a mob not to yell fire in a crowded theater, but to actually set the theater on fire. And who then, when the fire alarms go off and the calls start flooding into the fire department, asking for help, does nothing but sit back, encourage the mob, to continue its rampage and watch the fire spread on TV with glee and delight. So then we say this fire chief should never be allowed to hold this public job again, and you're fired and you're permanently disqualified, and he objects. And he says, we're violating his free speech rights just because he's pro-mob or pro-fire or whatever it might be. Come on. So, Kim Willie, what do you think of that argument? Uh, you know, first of all, I'm glad somebody else says fire like me because I'm from Buffalo. My kids make fun of me. They, <laughs> they say it's fire. But anyway, uh, you know, I, again, Jamie Raskin knows exactly what he's doing. And what what this is sort of anticipating is the First Amendment argument that we will hear for 16 hours in some capacity from the defense team. And frankly, even some other legal commentators in response to yesterday I've heard on air kind of credit the notion that, well, under the Brandenburg test, the First Amendment test for inciting violence, there's an argument that what Donald Trump did was protected speech because, you know, in the Brandenburg case, for example, there was a KKK um, rally with very strong sort of uh, incendiary words and the Supreme Court basically said that's protected speech. You can say, you can call someone to do illegal conduct and still have that protected. But this is way off the mark. I mean, what 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 Raskin is doing is a number of things. One is pointing out that there's a difference between a fire chief and somebody in government and a regular person. You know, the, the First Amendment is there to protect regular people against bullying by the United States government or state government or local government. Um, Donald Trump had the entire federal law enforcement apparatus at his fingertips in addition to the military. He is not, his First Amendment rights were not, um, it's just not the same uh, situation. And, and over 144 law professors have weighed in in a letter saying, listen, the First Amendment doesn't even apply in this context to impeachment. And the part of the reason it doesn't apply is, is the other metaphor that Raskin drew, um, which is that we're talking about firing the fire chief. <laughs> and here we're not, you know, we're not talking about putting Donald Trump in jail. This is not a criminal trial. We're not even talking about civil liability where you'd have to pay a penalty for, say, libel or slander or something like this. This is about 
basically a, a personnel action. He's no longer in office. So does the personnel action extend to keeping him off the ballot in 2024? And Lisa Murkowski made that comment, um, Republican from Alaska, mm-hmm. uh, uh, after yesterday said, listen, I mean, do we really want this guy potentially doing this again? Um, in if he get were to get four more years. So, so I think it's really important that metaphor that he made that it's just absurd to say that somehow this was protected speech and the rest of America and the thousands at the Capitol and the Capitol police officers and all of those whose lives were either lost or almost lost or maimed or, or injured for life, that somehow the First Amendment lets Donald Trump do what he did. It's, it's just absurd from a legal standpoint. No, this is really a good point. And also, you know, the fact that the president of the United States takes an oath, an oath of office to do certain things. And uh, so you, 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 even if you say that he has not committed an, a statutory crime, the the failure to uphold your oath, you know, ought to be, there ought to be consequences for all of that. And I suppose going back to Jamie Raskin's metaphor, it would be as if somebody ran into the fire chief and said, uh, chief, uh, there's a big fire going on, you know, down in the downtown Woolworths. And the chief says, no, let's ignore it. Okay, so are the words "no"? Let's ignore it. Would they be free speech? <laughs> As you point out, it's right. a personnel matter. It's a completely different category of speech. Your behavior and your actions, um, your dereliction of duty, are, are not just you know free speech matters. Uh, so, a couple of other things. Uh, I have a couple of other sound bites here, um, and I, and I, and I want to get to the what the defense is going to say. Um, I, I thought that one of the more uh, compelling presentations, and I, I, sh- I should have her name right in front of me. Uh, the representative from uh, the Virgin Islands, her name is Stacy Stacy Plaskett, who made an interesting point about the relationship between the rally and the march. Because this is an interesting question about you know was was this you know how how did this rally the clearly Trump uh, and his campaign organized, financed, uh, supported, et cetera, uh, promoted. How did that turn into the march on the Capitol? And I, I thought you made a point that I hadn't fully understood before yesterday. Let's play Stacey Plas- uh, Plaskett. Women for America First had initially planned for the rally goers to remain at the ellipse until the counting of the state electoral slates first was completed just like they had remained at Freedom Plaza after the second million MAGA march. In fact, the permit stated in no uncertain terms that the march from the ellipse was not permitted. It was not until after President Trump and his team became involved in the planning that the march from the ellipse to the Capitol came about in direct contravention of the original permit. That's it. That's interesting to me. And also, you know, I, I saw somebody ask the question, so why did Donald Trump say that he was going to march with the folks to the Capitol when he didn't clearly do that? And I, th- I think it's reasonable to think that that he made that announcement because he wanted to make sure that people went. That, right. that, 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 that in fact, that that he wanted to, to do this, uh, that he intended uh, to take people to the, the, the Capitol. Yeah, you know, Charlie, this this whole narrative um, requires a 9-11 type deep dive commission because there yeah. are so many layers to unpack here. Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, senator from Rhode Island, said on on air yesterday um, that if 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 there hadn't been manufactured, and those are my words, delays in certification of the counting of the votes, it would have been done 
before the mob would have had time to get there. And of course, the only phone call, like the, the House impeachment managers indicated, the only phone call Donald Trump made in the hours um, that this was unfolding was not to the vice president to see if he was okay. It was not to the National Guard or the Defense Department to, to send in reinforcements. It was to Tommy Tuberville yeah. to ask him to further delay the process. So I think what White House is positing, uh, similarly to the clip that you just mentioned, is how much were not just Donald Trump, Donald Trump's campaign, but potentially members of Congress and the Republican caucus um, aware or even conspired in connection with uh, with what the people that were planning this event to actually disrupt it physically on the Capitol. And of course, at, in this moment, I don't, I don't mean to suggest, I mean, this is somewhat speculation, but I'm not positing it. These are, these are members of the U.S. Congress that are positing this. And at a minimum, we, we need, we need to get to the bottom of it. And it also raised the question, um, you know, are these senators, some of them potentially so compromised um, that, you know, even though they were victims of the events, which I think was also compelling yesterday to see, to see that, you know, the, the sort of visceral emotional reactions during and after the presentation to some of these people that live through this. I mean, this was really excruciating for some of them and terrifying. Um, are, are they just, are, is kind of the uncovering the truth potentially so, so damaging that they're going to look the other way? I, I don't know, but these are questions that the Biden administration and the U.S. Congress absolutely have to have to address in in great detail, regardless of what happens with this trial. Well, I, I I think that it is fair to say that this is a jury that includes accomplices to Donald Trump. That 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 if in fact you know the predicate for all of this was the was was the big deep lie about the election being stolen, then you have people like Josh Hawley and you have people like Ron Johnson and Ted Cruz who told the same lie. And this is what makes this so uncomfortable that they went along with it. Um, they passed along the same kind of misinformation to people um, and, and people believed it. People believed it. You know, one of the things that really is, is also another one of the takeaways here, um, and I, I want to write a little bit more about it, is the way that the, the way that Washington and the Republican elite had convinced themselves that Donald Trump's words didn't matter, that his tweets didn't matter, that his lies didn't matter, right? That they, they that we weren't paying any attention. It didn't, but but all along, there were millions of Americans for whom they did matter. That the words did actually matter. That they took it both literally and seriously. That whole bullshit line about you know people knew not you know take it seriously, not literally. No, a lot of people actually did, and they were prepared to to act on it. So you know, there's a great piece in the New York Times today. Well, actually, it's a very disturbing piece in the New York Times today about some of the things that the talk radio hosts had said uh, before the election. You know, people like, you know, Glenn Beck, who's completely freaking lost his mind. It's time to fight. It's time to rip and claw and rake. It is time to go to war as the left went to war four years ago. Okay, so I suppose we're supposed to believe that that's just like metaphorical, right? That those are just figures of speech. But 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 what? What are they supposed to mean? You know, I mean, what is he, what are they talking about? What do they think that people listening to that who are being told that the election has been stolen, the democracy is under siege, they're told to rip and claw and rake. What does that mean? Send mean tweets? You know, have angry Facebook posts? Peacefully protest? What are they actually asking people to do? Well, we and, are, you know. 
Yeah, we already know what we we knew before January 6th, and that's what happened in Michigan, plot to, you know, kidnap the governor, or attempt to overtake the legislature. They had acted on it. And, you know, the hypocrisy and intellectual dishonesty around this is in part troubling because we've also heard, Charlie, for four years about how brilliant Donald Trump is in communicating with yeah with his people, right? That, that, that is why, you know, he knows how to connect his big rallies, his tweets, his, this, his, that the house impeachment managers mentioned yesterday, there were 16 tweets between midnight on the, on the sixth and noon in those 12 hours, Very interesting. encouraging his followers. And then, you know what, when it was time to actually tamp down on the violence, it was radio silence. It was tw- crickets out of Donald Trump's feed, Twitter feed, until he did, for example, call Mike Pence a coward after the shouts were arising to to execute him and to hang him. And there was an actual noose that was erected outside of the Capitol, presumably for that purpose. Um, so the idea that it's it just, you know, the de- defying basic logic is uh, it makes my brain hurt, Charlie, but it also in this moment makes my heart hurt because of you know, watching the sheer bravery. I mean, on the other side, I think the story yesterday was one of good and evil, frankly, because mm-hmm. to watch, you know, the Capitol Police officers act as decoys, decoys to protect our elected representatives of Congress and their staff, to see the, the this closed circuit video of Mitt Romney doing a 180 and running away from the mob, the, you know, the same thing with Chuck Schumer. Uh, it, it's just... I, you know, Tom Cruise couldn't couldn't you know do a do a better job at keeping us on the edge of our seats and in right. fear that, than what the House managers did yesterday. And we're going to see, and it's it's just again, it breaks my heart. We're going to see um, those people having up, upheld their oaths. That is the members of the Capitol Police Force and the, the D.C. Police that were doing this with no help from Donald Trump, who had been watching it and and refused to lift a finger, despite reports that his own daughter, Jared Kushner, um, people were saying, please, please, please. He was ignoring it. They adhere to their oaths. They put their lives on the line. But the Republican members of the Senate, they're not going to adhere to their oaths and put themselves in some potential political uh, vulnerability because they're not going to toe the party line uh, with Donald Trump. And I say the party, the, the Trump party line, not the traditional Republican party line. But we love you. You're very, very special. Remember this remember. day forever. Exactly. What are you going to remember, Charlie? Right. I, I, Raskin did a great job on that. Remember blood. Remember bludgeoning. Remember death. Remember chaos. Remember fear. Oh, is that what he wants? Are we going to have a love, holiday now? We love we love you. You know, Windsor Man had a tweet. He really summed up the day in, in, in one sentence that Trump watched with delight what we are watching in horror. And if 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 you were paying if anybody was paying any attention, they understood that yesterday. You know what I thought also thought was interesting was here's a guy who um, has no problem saying stop the steal, stop the steal, and you know, expressing his his viewpoint as strongly as possible. And all those people that you just described were on the phone with him saying, Tell them to stop the attack, stop the attack, stop the attack. He didn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He was saying, like, well, just stay peaceful. He he always has a way of Kind of like you know the the mob boss has the way of having a little bit of deniability. So he'll he'll have ten thousand words and he'll throw in yes, but do it peacefully in the middle of it. And then of course that's enough of a fig leaf for Republicans and and the uh, and the pro Trump media to to say that well he didn't he didn't actually mean it. But you know if if he didn't if he did not foment slash incite this, then why did everybody in his world think that he had the power to stop it? Right? Why are you calling him 
if he had nothing to do with this. Right. And, you know, I did a piece this morning in the Bulwark summarizing yesterday's the kind of the highlights. And I mentioned I had interviewed this week Anthony Scaramucci and asked him that very question. I said, you know, and how well, you know, you know, former White House communications director for Donald Trump for famously 11 days, but knew him before that. Um, does does he do that on purpose? He said, absolutely. It's deliberate. He's he he sprinkles that kind of the peaceful word in there, knowing that'll give him plausible deniability later, even though the message is clearly the opposite. And sometimes he oversteps the line, but it's enough. It's enough to give, as you indicate, the Republicans cover. Listen, Charlie, I mean, you know, if I'm no psychologist, um, but I think what we saw yesterday was uh, a a story of a a severe sociopath. And when I say that, a a person, Donald Trump, who literally has no compassion for for human life, that the rest of us are still looking at that, like, how could you not, how could you not do anything to help these people, particularly given that you ran on law and order, right? You ran on, I'm going to get, if, if you elect Joe Biden, there's going to be chaos and violence in the streets and I'm for the police force. But it's because he just didn't care. He, he didn't care. And, and that's kind of a counterintuitive concept. We project sort of normal decency and humanity on on the people around us because that's how it, that gives us order in our own lives. Donald Trump doesn't have that chip. It's missing in his brain. And, and that's why we saw him standing by gleefully, as you indicate, sort of reportedly sort of stunned. I think someone reported, what was it, Ben Sass said that he was Mm -hmm. surprised other people weren't as delighted as he was, was the people around him that have been enabling him, but drew the line at, at this kind of carnage. Well, and, and of course, and no, that that's where that phone call to Tommy Tuberville comes in because, you know, he's watching this and he's thinking, this is a way for me to stop the certification of Joe Biden's election. So I'm going to be on the phone. And while this is the attack is, is undergoing, I'm going to pursue a parallel strategy to get Tommy Tuberville to uh, object to more states. And Rudy Giuliani called him a little bit later. So clearly he was thinking that what the protesters were doing would help him. And he wanted this to happen. I just, you know, you're right that he, that he lacks the, the chip. What, what, what is so painful for me, what makes my head hurt, what my, makes my heart hurt is that other people don't see it. That other people who are, I think, probably in their, in their, in their daily lives, good and decent and compassionate human beings. How did they not, how do they look at this? Now, you know, there's a, only just a certain, I'm, I'm tired of, you know, talking about the, you know, alternative reality media and everything, but you would think that this would be a moment where, you know, the scales would fall from your eyes and you say, okay, wow, this is bad. This is terrible. I, I've gone this far, but I'm not going to go any further. Sort of what happened with Liz Cheney that she said, okay, you know, I voted with you 98% of the time or whatever it is, 92% of the time, but I'm just not going here. And yet all these other Republicans are sitting there and they're weaving for themselves excuses not to do the right thing, not to pay attention. Now, maybe they're not as, as you know, grotesquely awful as Josh Hawley, who is, you know, sitting up in the, in the gallery with his feet up on the desk, basically saying, you, you know, not only am I not paying attention, not only am I pro-Trump, but, you know, um, I, I need, I mean, he's engaging in performative assholery. I mean, it's like, how can I distinguish myself from all of the other assholes, you know, in the caucus? Well, I'm going to do this. So, I mean, they're, it, they're, they're these people, they're all these it, excuses, but, but, you know, Besides the complete sociopath, unless you are, I mean, if you're not a complete sociopath, how are you not moved by this? 
exactly. And let me just, you know, just a little legal point that I, I you know, that I just wonder about. Um, and that is, you know, I did a piece a while ago in the Atlantic talking about the kinds of, of laws that maybe need some revision going forward to avoid this going, um, you know, this mayhem a second time. But under the Insurrection Act, which is the mechanism whereby a president can actually trigger martial law, that is bring in bring in federal troops, you know, the, the military to address civilian unrest. Um, the only prerequisite to that is uh, that the president first tell the insurrectionists to go home. So, it, so, you know, I don't know what the end game was with Donald for Donald Trump, but if this had been more successful in terms of an in you know, actually overtaking the Capitol, dragging people to the gallows or whatever. And Donald Trump did say to himself, okay, we're now crossed a line where I can step in. That final, that claim for them to be peaceful and go go home, that would have given him the legal prerequisite to to impose martial law. And and I I say that because, Mm. you know, 2024, friends, you know, if he gets on the ballot again, and the, he and he walks away unscathed. You know the people that that actually pay for this are the insurrectionists who followed his followed his lead, and will some will end up in prison. Um, over a hundred have been arrested. Um, but if he comes back unscathed, that's the future that the Republicans in the Senate are sanctioning for America and for our children. I mean, democracy is fragile. It is not in the bank. It is not our birthright, and it has to be protected. And you know, they all should be voted out of office, Charlie, if they vote to acquit. Well, I think this is the most compelling argument I think to make is that is that if if they do not draw a a bright red line, this could happen again. This will happen again. And I agree with you that if Donald Trump runs in 2024, you know, in answer to the question, well, well, why shouldn't you allow him to run in 2024? If, If he runs in 2024 and he fails again, does anyone think that we won't have the same scenario, including the possibility of even greater violence? You know, what if that crowd had had more guns? What if uh, the Capitol Police had not been restrained? I mean, I keep thinking as I was watching this, this could have been so much worse. I mean, imagine if there had been more shots fired and how many people would have been killed. But you're but you're right. You know, this there's two reasons. For, I think I said this yesterday that there, there are two reasons for this trial, why it had to take place. Number one is to hold Donald Trump you know, accountable for his actual conduct, but also to be a deterrent for the next would be fascist authoritarian who might want to overturn an election. And th- this this trial had the potential, maybe still does. I'm not that naive, but, um, you know, to make a, a strong bipartisan case about all of that. But I worry about this. I mean, I just simply because we've had one coup that fails doesn't mean that we won't have other coups. If you know anything about history, you know that that one push leads to another push. One, one attempted coup uh, leads to another coup because coup because it has exposed exactly what you just said, Kim, how fragile this all is. Right. How- and. Uh- um, let me just add, Scaramucci also said, and I I, re- I refer to him because he knows him personally, um, that he's going to run for no other reason than he raises a lot of money. Um, you know, he got a lot of money in the last few months with the big lie, and Donald Trump's broke, and he can get his followers to donate a lot of money to him. So, so we have to proceed. We have to proceed, Charlie, with the expectation that he will run, that this hell, this nightmare is not over unless he's kept off the ballot in 2024. And Raskin made that comment, too. The defense is 
that this was totally appropriate conduct. So if it's totally appropriate conduct, if the Senate says it's totally appropriate conduct, Donald Trump will redo the totally appropriate conduct or someone like a Josh Hawley or MTG. I don't want to even say her name because giving that giving that Mm -hmm. energy to that insanity. Uh, There are people waiting in the wings to pick up from pick up this this hell where he left off. So over the next today's Thursday. Uh, while we're we're taping this, there will be uh, day day three of the trial, and then on Friday and Saturday, there will be a defense. Um, give you an indication of, of of some of the the status of the defense, which, by the way, was truly horrible yesterday. I mean, as as a, as a lawyer, I mean, you had to be sitting there going, "Okay, you're the ex president of the United States. You are a billionaire. You raised two hundred million dollars off of this, and you have come up with the worst legal team in America." Well, I mean. This guy makes, you know, my cousin Vinny look like Clarence Darrow. Yeah. You know, I taught two law school classes yesterday on Zoom. And <laughs> the very first question my students put in the Zoom chat was, what did you think of the of defense of Trump's lawyers? These are first years, right? Yeah, They've only been in law school for a semester. And they understood that. I mean, a couple things. One is um, they have terrible, terrible law and terrible facts. Yeah, and they don't a have problem. a burden of proof to rely on, right? Yeah. So, so if you have terrible law and terrible facts in a criminal trial, what you say is, listen, government hasn't proved this beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, they don't have that here. There isn't, this is again, a personnel decision. No one's putting Donald Trump in jail. The hundred percent, you know, the burden, whatever the burden is. I mean, some believe, you know, I interviewed uh, Glenn Kirshner last night. He believes we're beyond a reasonable doubt, well beyond a reasonable doubt. So this, these are the defenses. One is going to be the, what we heard from, you know, Don Jr. on TV. Uh, listen, it was just a couple comments about fighting. Come on, politicians fight. That gets us into the First Amendment question. I just want to, you mentioned Liz Cheney. If there was any First Amendment claim in this story, it was Liz Cheney who stood up um, to vote for uh, impeachment and the Republicans acted in response to censure her. That's the kind of political speech the Supreme Court has held that legislators are are protected for. That is, if they're going to take political positions, they can't be censured for that. Um, That's the kind of thing that that the First Amendment would step in, but these same members of Congress that will will trample on her speech will turn around and say, inciting a riot is protected. Um, That'll be number one. Uh, I have been surprised, frankly, Charlie, there hasn't been more of an argument around intent. We saw this a little bit, um, I can't remember which impeachment manager it was, that was kind of trying to say you can infer intent and for, intents inferred a lot of time. But what they, what the, what his defense team could do is say, listen, you, you're putting up a lot of Washington Post ar- summary articles about what people were saying about what mm-hmm. Trump was saying. Call those witnesses. If you're not going to call those witnesses, we don't know what what he was actually thinking at the time other than his tweets and his tweets are ambiguous that that's number two i think we're going to see this i said this silly first amendment argument we're going to see a due process argument but you know that's also completely silly um because he's having process we're in a trial that's called process yeah that (laughs) that that is the due process well um the 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 less awful of the two attorneys uh david schoen went on uh laura ingram's show last night and and I, I think provided a little bit of a preview of what they're going to say again. Let me just play this and get your reaction to it on the other side. 
say that without uh, wanting to even have to do that. We shouldn't be here. It's an illegitimate, unconstitutional impeachment process, completely lacking in any due I know, process but you lost that from point. start Don, to finish. Don, I understand that, but you lost that oh, point. Oh. I mean, we get it. I mean, I understand well, that argument. I'm a lawyer, but you yeah. lost that point. So now it's on to responding to the issue of incitement. That's, That's the right. one article you have. So my, I'm yeah. going to ask this question again, because I think there are a lot be of people who don't follow the law. Confident. I know, but they don't follow the law because they don't know the, the law or the, the law of impeachment. So they see all this video. Right. Then they see all these tr Trump tweets. Then they see the fact that he didn't yes. immediately come out and condemn it and tell them to go home. And they say, oh, well, this is just terrible. It is incitement. So you have to show um, that the other yes. side does that morning, noon and night for most of Trump's presidency. You got to show that. It's, yeah, a, it's a hint. I'm giving you a hint. Yeah, that's here. <laughs> Yeah, so so basically, she's trying to help out. She's trying to say, "Hey, you know, you 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 can't argue the the whole constitutionality thing because that motion has been denied. So in a court of law, you just can't keep doing that." Um, and so she's basically saying, uh, "We just need to do a lot of whataboutism." Right. That I mean, uh, she also though made a really good case for I think House impeachment managers um, rebutting his lame defense. And yeah, it will be wrote what about ism. Um, I was also on C-SPAN and, you know, the Republican line this week was all about what about ism, you know, mm -hmm. um, that, that is something that I think is going to appeal, uh, to the, to voters or to the, the American public. That's not something that would be relevant if this were an actual trial. And of course, um, you know, damaging private property, um, in connection with largely peaceful protests is a, a far cry from inciting, an overthrow of the government. I mean, that's, that's, I think the piece, Charlie, that, that is being, is missed here. This is not a protest. This is not, you know, just, just in, even a riot, um, you know, in the streets someplace. This was, and the impeachment managers made this clear. Donald Trump chose January 6th for a reason. I think the, the protest was supposed to be later. January 6th was, was specially chosen. It was handpicked because mm -hmm. that's the day that a joint session of Congress was going to count the certified uh, electoral college votes for Joe Biden by a margin, the same margin that Trump says was a landslide when he was there four years earlier. It's that it's that that, of course, was exactly what the framers were worried about. And this was in, as you know, Charlie, they it's not just uh, in the federal uh, law and state law that you can't incite an insurrection. It's in the 14th Amendment. It's in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was passed after the Civil War, because uh, the framers at that time were worried about former Confederate um, you know, leaders running for office and upsetting Reconstruction. So it's specifically, expressly in the Constitution that this is not a-okay. We're in a different land than any other protests that we've seen, at least in you know modern. So talk, so talk to me about this. Okay, let let just set the impeachment trial aside for a moment. What other? remedies are there? You mentioned there is the 14th Amendment, which disqualifies anybody involved in insurrection from, from public office. There's the possibility of a 9-11 type commission. There's always the possibility of a grand jury investigation into whether or not there was a conspiracy, et, et, et cetera. Which of those options are, are, are viable, are reasonable to think that, that, that when this thing is over and he's not convicted, that there's still ways of holding Donald Trump accountable? Well, we know, of course, that Georgia 
um, this week. I don't know if they were emboldened by the presentation yesterday. Georgia prosecutors are investigating potential election fraud, conspiracy, RICO actions in connection with Donald Trump's phone call to Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, asking that he find votes, asking that he essentially commit election fraud. And so that's ongoing um, and, uh, and and important. It's rare, I think, for prosecutors to announce the way that she did. Um, mm. But but that's happening. So that's the executive branch. Of course, Joe Biden under Merrick Garland, who now finally has a hearing date, a confirmation hearing date, um, could, could, produce, so yeah, could also yeah. follow through on potential grand jury or maybe even federal crimes. But that's the executive branch. Um, your first question had to do with Congress, right? So Congress is laying down all over the place, going out to pasture. Impeachment is irrelevant. Um, remember the first time it was, we, we're acquitting him on obstruction of Congress. So Congress can't meaningfully do oversight anymore because now any president can blow off yeah. any request for information. But uh, you know, I did a piece in Politico on that Article 14, or, uh, um, Amendment 14, Section 3. At the time Congress passed a statute, just so people understand, the Constitution, you can't just generally walk into court and say, my rights were violated. Congress needs to pass a law that basically gives the court jurisdiction, creates a cause of action. So Mm -hmm. the, the Congress did that, you know, 1870, I think, and it, it made it a misdemeanor to actually Mm. run. And of course, historically, it was pretty easy back then to say you're an insurrectionist because you were a leader in the the Confederacy. So the proof is going to be a difficult part. Um, But that also allows prosecutors to basically enjoin or arrest someone who is trying to run for office. That's a pretty arcane, outdated mechanism for enforcing the 14th Amendment. But there's nothing precluding this Congress from passing a new statute that would create a civil cause of action. That's how, for example, we have 42 USC 19 Section 1983. That's how you can you can sue a police officer for violating your constitutional rights. Is because Congress passed a law authorizing a cause of action for another part of sec- of the Fourteenth Amendment. So what I suggest is Congress come in, pass a law that says, listen, if uh, if if somebody who participated in an insurrection, including all those folks that were on the mall, I mean, we know there were some elected officials in that crowd, want to run for office, someone should have a civil cause of action to be able to get get them off the ballot. Now, that might be unconstitutional in terms of how that's drafted. There would be a challenge to it. But at least, Charlie, we would see the United States Congress actually functioning as a coordinate branch of government and and conducting some measure of oversight of the presidency. Okay, just two last points that I'd like to just just throw up there. Number one, I'm really struck by how quiet the whole Blue Lives Matter movement is. After watching those videos, remember all of that? I mean, all, I all, the, all the flags, the blue, the blue, thin blue line flags and, you know, yeah. blue lives matter and we back the blue and all of this um, in, in, in that first video that they that they presented on, on on day one, the 13 minute video. I think the most remarkable thing was, you know, watching all these people going, you know, F the police, F the police. And they attack the viciousness, uh, the total lack of any kind of respect. How can you claim? that you support law enforcement and not be absolutely horrified by watching what what happened to the, the cops there. That, that's number one. Number two, I think it's kind of interesting. The Proud Boys may actually break away from Trump before the Republican Party. Did you see this story about the the uh, case of this guy named Dominic Pozzola? Politico has a big story. He was indicted last month on on conspiracy charges for his role in the insurrection, and he's, he wants to get out of jail early. So he filed a 15-page motion for leniency, and he just, his lawyers just ripped Donald Trump. Let me just read this. 
Defendant acted out of a delusional belief that he was a patriot protecting his country. He was responding to the entreaties of the then Commander-in-Chief President Trump. The president maintained the election had been stolen, and it was the duty of loyal citizens to quote-unquote stop the steal. Admittedly, there was no rational basis for the claim, but it is apparent defendant was one of millions of Americans who were misled by the president's deception. Many of those, and I love this line, many of those who heeded his call will be spending substantial portions, if not the remainder of their lives, in prison as a consequence, his attorney wrote. Meanwhile, Donald Trump resumes his life of luxury and privilege. So there you go. Wow. I mean, you go. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think they also said yesterday the House impeachment managers made the argument that some or the point that some of these people actually thought Donald Trump was going to call the National Guard in to help them, them. Not to stop them. So, I mean, the question really, Charlie, is what's left of the Republican Party? I mean, can, you know, can't you can't really now be the law and order party legitimately after sort of abandoning law enforcement on the Capitol. You can't I mean, you're make you know, making Matt angry the sort of the far, far right conspiracy people that that supported Donald Trump in that moment. And they all they feel abandoned because they are abandoned. I mean, I know it was reported. I don't know if uh, people at the Bulwark are, are connected to that, that there's some talk about a that a, mo- a moderate new moderate wing of centrist, the, uh, yeah. centrist yeah. Um, Republican Party. Uh, it's just hard to to see other than the Trump party that is adherence to someone with a severe personality disorder that just likes chaos and violence. Um, It's really interesting what these senators, the 17 who, who are on the fence in theory, what these senators see as their path towards ongoing power and privilege in the United States Senate by acquitting Donald Trump. Where, where are the voters? Well, um, as you know, I was talking with Bill Crystal yesterday. I think they've been convincing themselves that they're, you know, they're poised to make a comeback, that they're just fine, that they've, you know, come this far, they've survived this well, and that it really is about power. I just, I, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I heard somebody saying, you know, you wonder why they're not more concerned about the way they're going to be remembered in history. Um, yeah, that's that's a legitimate concern, and I ask that question all the time. But also, at what point do you go? Okay, I'm sitting here. I'm a United States senator. I've taken an oath of office. This, if there was ever a moment to test what my priorities are, what my values are, whether I'm going to put country over party, this is it. And apparently that is not going to be moving more than six Republican senators. And so yeah. Were. I mean, Chuck Rosenberg was on MSCBC. He was a you know longtime member of yeah. the Justice Department. And he told a story about 9-11, which of course oh, was I heard also that. raised um, by yeah. uh, Ms. Plackett yesterday, Representative Plackett. But yeah, he was talking about these two fighter jets that were, you know, one woman, one of the first that was ever a, a woman that could was authorized to fly an F-16 and then a, a young man. And they were, they were told to deploy um, and they weren't hot in, in Rosenberg's words. That is there, there were no guns or any kind of mechanism to take down that, that plane that was headed for the Capitol. And they went along and did it anyway. Said they, they, they knew they would die if they achieved their mission. And it turns out, you know, flight 93 went down earlier, but if they achieved, achieved their mission, they would have, they would have died. That's how serious they took their oath of office. And here we've got these cowards with their feet up on the on the table fist pumping this is of course Josh Hawley um you know uh, insurrectionists who who maimed and killed law enforcement officers I, I, I don't know how to I don't know how to wrap my head around it, um, Charlie. Uh, all I can say, the good news is, you know, my 11 year old walks in and out as I do this stuff and she sees it clear as a bell. I do think um, there's a time in life where even these people might have had a, a beating heart to have understood the, the gravity and gone with their with their humanity. 
over overpower. I don't know. It, it is one of those tests, and we always wonder how would we answer if we were, in fact, tested. Sometimes we just never actually know. Well, the Republican Party is going to uh, find out uh, how it reacts to this test, and I am not in any way optimistic whatsoever. Kim Whaley, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We appreciate it very, very much. Thank you, Charlie, for having me. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and do this all over again. Quick reminder that if you want to get a little bit more of the Bulwark take on this, we are going to be having the Bulwark Plus exclusive live stream tonight at 8 o'clock Eastern time with special guest Ben Wittes from Lawfare. Talk to you tomorrow.